Okay, grab your Bibles or grab your bulletins, turn to the back. We're done with the Ten Commandments. We're back to Galatians. Welcome back to the book of Galatians. So I grab my notes here. Uh, How do we kind of re-enter? We're re-entering the last two chapters. So we've done in the fall, or I guess we started in the spring, late spring, we did chapters 1 and 2, 3 and 4. Then we went to the uh, Ten Commandments, and now we're at five and six. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to begin by telling you a little story. Tony, Barry, and I are moved into a place called Simsbury, Connecticut, which is about 30 minutes outside of Hartford at the same time. We actually all moved in during the summer of our freshman year in high school. Uh, Barry came from Ohio. Tony came from Arizona. We came up from Houston, Texas. Uh, We became close friends, our families, our parents became close friends, even to this day we're close friends. Um, It was was basketball season at this time, Tony and Barry in basketball, I'm in another sport, I couldn't dribble and walk at the same time, called wrestling. Um, After a Friday night game, everyone was going to the local hangout in town, you know what that was? McDonald's. You see, New England towns at that time did not have fast food restaurants within their borders. They wouldn't allow them. They only had mom and pop stores. And so what happened was is that in the border areas of these towns, they would be rowed with fast food restaurants. Now, it's always made for interesting relational dynamics with your crosstown rivals when everyone went to the border towns, fast food restaurants, and hung out with each other at McDonald's. It was... Cheers and goodwill and great sportsmanship happened on those evenings. Uh, anyway, after the game, Barry said he had to go home first before he could go to McDonald's. His parents are out of town that weekend. He needs to deal, take care of the dog. And, and uh, we said, fine. He says, I'll meet you at McDonald's. Cool. We'll see you at McDonald's. So as soon as Barry leaves to go to the uh, locker room to clean up, uh, Tony and I look at each other and, and say, do you got the key? Yep, let's go. And so we drove up to Barry's house, parked our key around the corner, let ourselves in, positioned ourselves very strategically in the house. Uh, there are two entrances into three in the entrances of the house. He never goes through the front door. He always goes through the, either one of the doors in the den, because that's where the driveway and the garage is. But the den is here. You've got to come in two doors. It moves into the kitchen, which is here. And there's a center island in the kitchen. And we strategically placed ourselves behind the center island and waited. I pulled out one of those old Mattel football games. You remember those things? Beep, beep, beep. Oh, yeah. Madden had nothing on those things, let me tell you. So we played that game for about 45 minutes. We're playing that game back and forth, back and forth, and we see the lights hit the den. We turn it off. We turn around, and we crouch behind the center island, and we wait. Now, we knew as he came in, he, had, he came in, and the first thing he starts doing, <laughs> starts talking to his dog. Now, we've always teased him about his dog. He had this little dog, little dog. It had a little dog, and it had fur. You didn't even see the face, and he called the dog Tammy. I mean, to endless grief, we would say, Tammy. I mean, he, so he comes in, he goes, hey, Tim, hey, Tim, and we're just, <laughs> oh, good girl, good girl. Now, uh, what happened next is this, and it happened really, really quick. So you got to stay with me. As soon as he says, hey, Tam, hey, Tam, we jump up behind the center island and went, ha! 
Now, time out. Growing up, I saw a lot of horror movies growing up as a kid. And the horror movies that I watched, I always thought, this is so fake. This is so not real. It was always, always, usually, some girl would get herself in a very bad situation, and then instead of running, she'd scream all the time, right? Something would happen. You know she's going to trip. You know she's going to go through the wrong door. You know she's going to make the wrong move. Everybody's yelling, and I'm like, yes, here we go, same thing. And then she screams, and she should be running, and she's screaming. And then the thing I thought was most unreal, though, is the hands always went up to the face like this, remember? Right? That's what happened. That is for real. There is nothing fake about that whatsoever. Barry screamed, and he screamed, and he screamed. So Tony and, Tony and I look at each other saying, this is not working out the way we thought it was. Barry, Barry, it's us, it's us, it's Tony, it's Jeff, it's us, you're okay. There are no bad guys here. That was the first time he moved. And he disappeared into the den for about a second, and then he came back with a golf club swinging. <laughs> now, there's a guy that we all know, and he's an international record-breaking bestseller of horror, right, Stephen King? You know what he says? He says, I like to scare people, and people like to be scared. This passage is going to ask you what scares you. Now, when Pete and I were little, uh, every night at bedtime, Pete would sprint towards the bed, and when, we, when, when he got within the three-feet marker of the bed, he went airborne, and then he'd roll into bed. You know, why would he do that? Because of the thing under the bed, of course, right? So what, what is your thing under the bed? Welcome back to Galatians, because what's going to happen in Galatians in this passage is that the thing under the bed is going to get exposed. And surprisingly, you're going to be set free from its terror. Okay? Now, this passage, Galatians 5, 1 through 6, that we're going to look at here, it's for anyone who knows what it's like to run scared. And longs to run free. Now for you, I want to make this clear. The monster under the bed doesn't have to be a Stephen King novel. Or two jokers hiding in your house when nobody was there and jumping out at you. You can run scared from people's opinions of you. You can run scared from failure. You can run scared from conflict and stress in life and in relationships. You can run scared fearing you're abandoned or will be abandoned or not loved and never accepted and never find the right one or never have children or whatever it is. Okay? So let's stand for the hearing of God's word.
Galatians 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, and that means submits to it, trusts it, hopes in it, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, which is, again, a picture of circumcision. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I'm not going to be able to touch on this one. I'm going to have to wait, I think. I'm going to do it next week. I don't know what I'm going to do. But many people wrongly interpret that as the hope of righteousness to come. No, it's the hope of righteousness that you have now. All right? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day. Thank you that we can sing. Thank you that we can sing to you, sing to one another, and thank you that we can have any spark of life towards you. And we acknowledge that uh, many of us feel like, spark, man, my light's out. I don't even have a pilot light. Lord, we thank you that you delight to deliver desperate people. So, oh Lord, would you deliver us? And for some of us, we've got to get desperate would you get us desperate for you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the map of Galatians is pretty straightforward. Those of you that are joining us, you know, I'm going to get you caught up to speed really, really quick. If you look at chapters 1 and 2, it's basically about the messenger. It's Paul's bio. What's happened is, is that Paul has planted these churches in Galatia, modern-day Turkey. Uh, but a follow-up team came after him and started messing up the churches. Messing up the people, started teaching things that were just uh, controversial, and then they became confused, and then it just got really, really bad. Now, Paul did not send the follow-up team up to the Galatian churches. And Jerusalem, the mother church at that time that's sending, planting churches like crazy, did not send them either. These were self-appointed super saints that thought they could fix everybody. You don't know anybody like that, do you? Aunt Judy, Uncle Fred, perhaps you, right? Now, what they, to fix the churches, the Galatian or the Jerusalem follow-up team uh, attacked Paul's apostleship. Ow. He's a second-rate apostle with a second-hand message. It was a really good strategy because what God did is God had cosmically cemented his messengers with his message. So his messengers were called apostles and they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection and they were officially God-sent messengers. And then they were given a God-sent or a God message, God's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus. And he cemented them together. So the strategy was attack his apostleship, you can attack his message. 
All right? You see what they're up to? So Paul, in response to this in the first two chapters, has to talk about or write about his least favorite subject in all the scriptures that he's written himself. He's got to defend his apostleship. Can you imagine? I mean, I I try to put myself in Paul's shoes. Uh, I know my first two chapters wouldn't look like his. I'm out swinging for the fence. Now, in chapters 3 and 4, we zero in on the message. Okay? The messenger, the message. And when we're zeroing in on the message, we're zeroing in on God's gospel. We're zeroing in on a Jesus or grace salvation is what we start zeroing in on. And this message, uh, everywhere it's gone. I mean, if you're looking the 1500s, it, it got rediscovered in the 1500s and, and it erupted and it impacted and changed and shaped the whole world even to this day. I mean, even... Even secular newspapers, when they do like Time, did their top 100 most influential people in the world ever. On the list were the folks that were a part of the rediscovery of the gospel in the 1500s, like Luther and Calvin. In the first great awakening in the 1600s, 1640s, this message erupted that awakening. Everywhere the message of chapters 3 and 4, God's gospel, is rediscovered on a personal level and on a corporate level, awakening, renewal, growth, surprising freedom erupts. All right. Now, where are we? We're entering chapters 5 and 6, right? We're at the last part of the book. So what's going on here? What's going on? We did 1 and 2. Three and four. Now you're all caught up to speed. Genesis 5.1 is the lens for the final book. The final part of the book are the last two chapters. All right? Uh, I want you to think of 5.1 like the prologue to the Ten Commandments. Remember, those of us that were going up, trekking up Mount Sinai, remember there was a prologue. And we saw it in our little, in our uh, renewal section. The prologue went like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of Israel. That prologue was the governing lens that God wants us to look through as we begin to see the Ten Commandments. As Paul moves to chapters 5 and 6, as he's transitioning from his apostleship to his apostolic message, he's now moving into the impact of it all. He gives you 5.1 as the governing lens to look through as we look at chapters 5 and 6. Okay? That's how I want you to see it. So here's the lens. You ready? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you know it took 105 verses for Paul to get to his first application? Paul would be fired if he was a homiletics professor, a teacher of preaching today. He doesn't get to the command. He doesn't get to the life change. He doesn't get to what fixes you. He doesn't get to his exhortation. He doesn't get to his application until 105 verses into this book. All right. The point of this last section is this. Are you ready? 
We're moving into this last section is now we went to the messenger, to the message, to the message's impact. That's where we're at. The fruit of the gospel, we could say. Gospel, what's its fruit? Fruit over here. Gospel, what's its powerful effects in the life and in relationships? Chapters 5 and 6. You ready? Here it is. Personalized just for you. Here it is. Run free. Run free. But we kind of run scared most of the time. So Galatians 2, 5, 2 through 6 tells us why we run scared. It specifically tells us the thing under the bed. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who trusts, submits to circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed, a description of circumcision from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. You know what the thing under the bed is? The thing under the bed, according to this passage, is whatever serves as your circumcision. What scares you and makes you run scared more than anything in your life is whatever is your personal circumcision. Now, some of you are looking at me because I see it. What in the world are you talking about? This is the first time circumcision is mentioned in the whole book. Isn't that amazing? This is the first time it's mentioned in the whole book. It's amazing because he hasn't specifically addressed the issue till now. I mean, the single driving issue in the Galatian follow-up team's teaching is circumcision. The Galatian controversy that everybody talks about, the battle over what Christianity is between Paul and the follow-up team is over this issue of circumcision. And it doesn't show up till now. What the Galatian or the Jerusalem follow-up team was doing was saying, listen, this again, the Galatian churches were the first churches outside Jewish influence of going into the Gentile world. The first Gentiles are beginning to be reached on a massive scale and their churches are being planted beyond just Gentiles being reached here and there as they did around Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. But now in outright urban, Gentile, liberal places, Gentiles are being reached. And this Jerusalem follow-up team comes in and says they need to be circumcised. Real Christianity is about circumcision. Jesus and circumcision. Now, Paul, what Paul is saying, though, is that circumcision is not only not real Christianity, it's not even the real issue for the follow-up team. Look at verse 6. This is how we know that. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It doesn't even matter. Circumcise, don't circumcise. Who cares? Eat this, don't eat this. Who cares? Drink this, don't drink this. Who cares? Counts for nothing. 
It's not an issue. What? (laughs) What's going on here? If circumcision isn't the real issue for the follow-up team, what is? Look at verse 4. You who would be justified by the law. There's the real issue. Seeking to be justified is a good thing. (laughs) Seeking to be justified is a human thing. Seeking to be justified is a design image-bearer thing. It means seeking to be righteous. We could say it this way. It's seeking cosmic approval. It's seeking personal acceptance. It's seeking proof of worth. Every human being seeks to be justified. Ernest Becker in The Denial of Death describes it this way, the need to feel heroic. I like that. The need to know our life matters in the scheme of things. He goes on to say, the need to merge ourselves with something higher, a greater self-absorbing meaning. In other words, you find yourself by losing yourself in something greater. David Pallison, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary, a prolific writer, a biblical counselor, he personalizes the pursuit of justification this way. He puts it in the question, what would make you an acceptable person? What makes you an acceptable person in your eyes? C.S. Lewis would say justification is trying to find your home. Seeking to be justified is a good thing. By the law is a bad thing. That's the issue. Circumcision is just a visible marker of a deeper self-salvation strategy. It can vary. You could move circumcision and plant people's opinion. You can move circumcision and plant your career. You can move circumcision and plant your religion. You can move circumcision and plant your philosophy. You can move circumcision and plant um, sexual sin. You can move circumcision and plant respect. The root issue is seeking to be justified by the law. It's a self-salvation strategy, according to Paul, and we've looked at that all throughout uh, Galatians. It means self-justification. It means that you're seeking to be justified by our righteousness, and that's what the Scripture calls a self-righteousness. You know, we hear that word so often, we, we forget what it means, and what it means, it's seeking to be justified by our own record, our own achievement, our own performance, our own things, our own stuff, our own beliefs, our own preferences, our own standards, our own views. Okay. Uh, it's this self-generated approval. It's a self-generated acceptance. It's a self-generated, uh, what did I write down here? Worth and identity. It's the pressure to generate your own value. Now, circumcision was the tool Again, that tool can change. It was just a visible sign. 
of self-salvation. And so the, the thing under the bed is what is your circumcision? Your specific self-salvation strategy. That's the point of Galatians 2, Galatians 5, 2 through 6. Pallison would say, what functionally serves to make you an acceptable person? C.S. Lewis would say, what is your home, really? Paul would say, what is your righteousness, really? Chris Everett was the leading women's tennis player in the 70s and 80s. Her career win-loss record was the best of English singles player in history. Uh, She was contemplating retirement. When she did, uh, she was petrified. She was doing an interview, and this is what she said in the interview. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. Now catch this. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. You see, what scares us, the thing under our bed, is what is our circumcision? For Chris Everett, it was tennis. It was winning. It was the applause of others. What's ours? Notice how Paul describes the nightmare, though, of self-salvation through circumcision. Notice how he describes it. He describes it as a nightmare. He describes it as the thing under the bed. He describes it as, you run scared because of it. Here's what he says. Look at verse 2. Christ will be of no advantage to you, meaning there's no justification. There's no righteousness. There's no acceptance. There's no approval. There's nothing. Objectively and subjectively, we experience A cosmic rejection and ruin and doom and fear. That's running scared. He keeps going on. Look at verse 3. He says, every man who accepts trust and circumcision. And again, we could put anything in there. Achievement, physical appearance, perfect children, love and acceptance of others, career, success, tennis, applause, whatever. You're obligated to keep the whole law, though. See, whatever your circumcision is, it demands perfection. It is relentless in its demands for you to be perfect. Every failure you have, whatever your circumcision is, is met with a a deep shame, failure, ruin, loss, punishment of your very being. It's an emotional death. There is no forgiveness. There is no freedom. There's only demand, threat, and doom. That's scary. Now, verse 4, another thing. He says, you're severed from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. So we're stuck. What ends up happening if we're severed? Remember, that's the, the, the picture of circumcision. Severed, separated, cut off. We're cut off from Christ. We're cut off from grace. We're cut off from Christ. Right? What that means is now we're stuck with self. We're stuck in the fading empire of self. 
We can't get outside of self. Self-absorbed have been words that describe it. Self-love have been words to describe it. Self-centered have been words to describe it. Self-serving, self-making, self-creating, self-glorifying, self-relying, self-saving. You get the picture. So where's the way out in all of this? Is there a way out? Remember the prologue, right? The way out is certainly through the lens of of verse 1. I mean, I want you to see this. You've got to see this. The, The text is literally saying Christ sets us free for freedom. Don't miss that. And then he, gives you an, then he gives you an imperative. Christ sets us free is an indicative. You know what that means? He does it. He did it. So we don't set ourselves free. We don't do, you grammar geeks, we don't do indicatives. We do imperatives. We don't do indicatives in the gospel. Indicatives is something Jesus does. It's something Jesus accomplishes. It's something Jesus works. It's something he performs. It's something he does. We believe it. Trust it. Rely on it. Rejoice in it. But notice what he does. It says he does something objectively, concretely, in time and space and history 2,000 years ago in a life and a death and a resurrection. He sets us free. But notice what he does for freedom. Don't miss that. It's not just, and I, I feel weird saying this, it's not just objectively done. Christ sets us free. Paul is after, Jesus is after for freedom. Freedom, experiential, made real, subjectively in your life. So you don't run scared. So you don't leap three feet from the bed because of the thing under the bed. God is committed to set you free at the cross for freedom presently. Okay, now, how does this happen? What's the way out? Well, it's certainly through that lens. It's certainly through verse one, but we need to get a little more texture to it, a little more texture according to the passage. And that's this. There is a better circumcision in this passage than the circumcision made by human hands, than the circumcision made by self-reliance, than the circumcision made by a self-salvation strategy. Get it? In the Old Testament, circumcision represented both a blessing and a curse. The blessing is this. You're cut off, severed, separated from the fading empire of sin and death. That's a blessing. The curse is you're cut off, you're separated, you're severed from God. Now, the key is, no, when does that happen? Why does circumcision do that? Because circumcision has always been a sign and seal of a life lived by the law, of a life lived by law justification. And so if you don't live a life of the law, 
If you fail at any point in trying to justify yourself, seek righteousness, seek acceptance and approval by your performance and your achievement by keeping the law, circumcision pictures the curse. You're cut off. You're severed. You're separated from God. The better circumcision happened not by human hands, but by the hand of God himself. The better circumcision happened when God took his own hand and circumcised his own son on the cross. Cut him off. Severed him. Separated himself from him. For people who cannot and do not live a life of the law, for people who fail miserably in seeking justification by the law. So Jesus was cut off from God for those who violate a life of the law. He was cut off for the God for those who fail to be justified by the law. Okay? So the thing under the bed is crushed. It's crushed. All other, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to say this. All other fears and scary things, whether it's in horror movies or uh, anything that's the thing under your bed, they're all echoes, shadows of this great monster called the curse of God. So if God deals definitively with the thing under the bed, what should scare us? Here's the deal. The thing under the bed is crushed forever, so there's no more curse. So there's no more monsters of shame. There's no more monsters of failure. There's no monsters of doom. There's no monsters of ruin. There's no monsters of terror. There's no more fear. It's done. But you and I know we fear, we terror. <laughs> Make it a verb. It happens. So what happens? Fears and nightmares, things under the bed. Here's, here's what I want you to hear, and this is how we're ending. They're painful gifts from God. They're painful gifts from God to reveal your circumcision. To reveal you to you. You're not going to reveal yourself to you. You're not going to sit there and say, what are my, what are my strategies of self-salvation right now? Nobody thinks that way. Nobody lives that way. When we start asking those questions is where, man, there's something under my bed. Stephen King's writing me into his novel. You start running scared. People's opinions start debilitating you. Conflict you start running from. The fears are gifts from God to wake us up. Let the pain wake you up. Let the pain reveal you. Let it reveal your false trust. Let it reveal your false hope. Let it reveal your circumcision by human hands. All right? And then let the better circumcision... 
by the hand of God at the cross, crush it. There's no more curse, no matter what your false trust says to you. There's no more shame in my very being. There's no more loss of control in my very being. There's no more condemnation in my very being. There's no more failure of my very being. There's no more abandonment in my very being. Jesus took that. Christ set us free. Brothers and sisters, it's time to get up and run free. Amen.